Our second reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 26. Hear the word of God. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we ask for your help this morning as we gather as your called people. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would kindle in our hearts a deeper love for you and for your church. We pray that you would bind us closer to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, even as you bind us to yourself. We do pray for our number who were not able to be in service this morning because of distance or because of health, we pray that the bonds of Christian fellowship would remain intact even as we are apart from one another. We pray that we would bear one another's burdens. For those who are sick this morning, we pray that you would provide your healing touch. For those who grieve this morning, we pray that you would provide your comfort For those who are afraid this morning, we pray that you would provide your peace. And for those who are needy this morning, we pray that you would provide your provision. Lord God, all good things come from your hand. And so even this day we turn again to you asking for more blessings, recognizing that you have blessed us abundantly in past times. And out of that track record of blessing, we turn to you again in confidence this day, asking for all that we need. These things we pray in the name of Jesus, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 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 So even before I begin the introduction of this sermon, I want to offer a pre-introduction, a word of explanation, because last Sunday's sermon and this Sunday's sermon and next Sunday's sermon all deviate from my usual preaching practice in two important ways. First, these three sermons are all topical, while I am an exegetical preacher. And second, these three sermons are all about the business of the church at an organizational level, while I prefer preaching that applies to us as individuals. Let me talk about those two things separately. First, I am an exegetical preacher. That means that I work straight through whole books of the Bible at a time. Each week in the worship service, we read a portion of the book that we are preaching our way through. During the week, I will have spent time studying that text using the best historical critical methods. And my job in preaching is to help us as a congregation hear what God has to say to us from that particular text. As an exegetical preacher, I do not have to come up with sermon topics or ideas about what to preach on week to week. The biblical text tells me what to preach. Now, the opposite of exegetical preaching is topical preaching. A topical preacher comes up with some topic he wants to speak about, and then he looks around in the Bible for the verses that explain his view on that topic. The preacher's idea comes first. And then the preacher goes hunting for the verses he needs to support his idea. I almost never preach topically. But these three sermons, last Sunday, this Sunday, and next Sunday, are all topical. This past Friday, I saw Christina Smith. She's back in the United States from her mission uh, in Guatemala. And she had listened to uh, last Sunday's sermon online, and she said to me, Yeah, you know, Pastor Dan, your uh, sermon last Sunday wasn't very connected to the text that you read. I was chagrined, of course. But honestly, I was glad that she noticed. She noticed the difference between exegetical preaching, which is driven by the Bible itself, and topical preaching, which is prompted by the pastor's ideas. The second unusual thing about these three sermons is that they are all very much speaking about a particular situation in the life of our congregation at this time. Sometimes a sermon of mine touches on what's going on in our church as an organization, but most often I'm concerned about what's going on in our hearts individually. So this morning, if as you're listening to these sermons, you're thinking to yourself, gosh, that's a whole lot of church politics and church business. I'm not really sure what that has to do with me then I would encourage you to keep your eye on the general principles that our scripture passages touch on today. And those are these. Self-control is a key to a righteous and well-ordered life. 
There is no way to please God without self-control. And self-control is a fruit produced in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now those general principles are going to be in the background of this entire sermon. So that's my pre-introduction. Now let me move on to the regular introduction and eventually we'll wind our way to my benediction. As I told you last week, in two weeks I'm going to ask you for $12,500. $12,500 above what you have been giving to this church to run it on a week-to-week basis. And I'm asking you to give that money to pay the consultancy fee of the Go Center, which is going to come alongside of our church for two years, beginning in January 2020, to get this church moving again. As we discussed last Sunday in the sermon and in our annual meeting, after a 13-year run of year-to-year growth here at HVPC, we had a setback. In the last 12 months, we went backwards this past year. And the session and I are committed to making sure we don't have a repeat of that in the coming year. The growth that we enjoyed for 13 years was making our church younger and browner year after year. That's the kind of growth that we needed. Because when I arrived at HVPC in 2005, we were way out of whack in terms of looking like the mission field that we were called to, the people and the community that's around us. A healthy church looks like the community that it serves. It's mix of ages and races. Now there have been times in the life of HVPC when we did look like the community that we serve. In my office I have a large framed black and white photograph of this church with hundreds of Sunday school children lined up in front of our building. I believe little Bert Holmes is in that picture. Well, he's not little, but he's younger. Okay, let's put it that way. I'm not sure when, what year that picture was taken, but at that time, our church inside the doors roughly mirrored the age and the racial mix of the mission field outside of our doors. And that's the way it should be. But when I arrived in 2005, we were dramatically older and far whiter than our neighborhood. And for a dozen years, we have made slow and steady progress in becoming younger and browner over time. That was the right thing for us to do, and that's the kind of growth that ensures the future for a congregation. But then, about two years ago, we hit a quagmire. Some complicated committee business, if you're interested in the details. We hit a quagmire, and we slacked off. We went easy on ourselves. We lost our initiative, we started to coast. And we began to tell ourselves, you know, maybe the status quo isn't so bad because all of this change and progress is disruptive and costly. The Reverend Dr. Ken Pretty, the head of the Go Center, talks about the life cycle of churches. He describes the incline stage and the recline stage and the decline stage. I talked about that in our sermon on October 27th. You can find that on a CD in the back of the sanctuary. Of course, it's always available online at hvpc.org. If you don't mind me mixing my metaphors for a moment, 
I think you can think of the church as a merry-go-round. The incline phase is when a group of committed people with their hands on the bars of the merry-go-round, their feet digging into the dirt, are pushing the merry-go-round hard. Slowly the speed increases, slowly the momentum builds, and then faster and faster the blessed thing turns. That's incline. That's hard work, and that's exciting, because you're building something that has a future. But then comes recline. That's when you stop pushing the merry-go-round and instead jump on for a ride. You leave the ground behind and you relax and you enjoy the world as it spins by. The recline or the plateau stage in a church actually can be quite pleasant. Churches in recline or plateau often have nice buildings, vibrant programs, large staffs, big endowments. But many reclining churches don't know that they've actually entered into a crisis phase. Comfortable, but in crisis. Because if you are coasting, and you don't get off the merry-go-round and start pushing again, your future is set. Over time, you will slow down and finally come to a dead halt. After a dozen years of pushing the merry-go-round hard here at HVPC, we made some coasting decisions about 24 months ago. It seems like we just decided to stop pushing and to go for a ride for a while. And then about 12 months ago, we began to see the price of that decision. And for the first time in 13 years, we started to move backwards. But don't worry. Because we're not going to let that happen again in 2020. Because we're going to start pushing again. That's what the leadership of this church has decided. That it's time to jump off the coasting merry-go-round and start pushing this church again. Last month, the church signed a contract with the Go Center. Their job will be to hold us accountable, to keep us moving, to hold our feet to the fire, to not let us get sidetracked or distracted by peripheral issues. And the very first thing the Go Center recommended to the session was that we go directly to the congregation and ask for the money up front. The amount of money needed to hire the Go Center for this two-year engagement is actually very small relative to our operating budget. The session could have written the check for this, no problem. But it is important for the whole congregation to be invested in bringing a new season of revival and vitality here at HVPC. And that's why I will be asking for $12,500 in new money in just two weeks. That will be your opportunity to jump off the coasting merry-go-round and to add some of your muscle to the task of getting things moving again in the right direction. Last week we started a 21-day period of prayer and fasting here at HVPC, and in last Sunday's sermon... We read a call to fasting and prayer from the prophet Joel, and we read what John Calvin had to say about fasting in the life of the church corporately. There are times of private fasting and prayer, 
when there is an issue that needs to be ironed out between us and God individually. A number of you in this congregation have a spiritual practice of regular fasting and prayer. But there are also times for the whole church to fast together. And those are times of corporate confession. Those are times when we all communally go before God and we beat our breast and we say, God, have mercy on us because we're sinners. We are lost without you. As Americans and as rugged individualists, we're not so good at corporate confession. We're happy to point out where the other guy has made a mistake. But we're slow to own that part of the world's problem, that part of our nation's problem, that part of our church's problems, that part of our neighborhood's problems, that part of our family problems that belongs to us personally. We're so afraid of repenting of something that we haven't done that we miss out on the opportunity to repent for what we have done. We're so busy saying, it wasn't my fault, I wasn't on that committee, or it wasn't my fault, I wasn't even born then. We're so busy shifting blame to someone else that we missed the opportunity to plead the cause of the world, to plead the cause of our nation, of our church, of our neighborhood, the cause of our family before the throne of mercy. God responds to brokenhearted people. And God resists those who are proud blame shifters. So here's my challenge for you this morning. As a pastor who knows you and who loves you, do not be afraid of over-confessing. Because you can't. None of us understands the depth of our own sin and depravity. But here's a clue, if you want a little insight into how messed up we are. The only way that we could be saved is for the spotless Son of God to be executed for us. Think about that for a minute when you're busy shifting blame away from yourself. Don't worry about over-confessing. You can't do it. But instead, jump into and enjoy this season of corporate confession, of communal prayer and fasting as we ask God to relent in this season of providential affliction that we're facing in this congregation. Now, if you find it really hard to join into that spirit of communal confession for sins that have caused this church to move backwards over the last 12 months, if you really can't stomach the idea of going before God's throne of grace and asking for mercy in a case where you have not been personally responsible, then let me invite you to ask this diagnostic question of yourself To do a quick analysis of your individual role in the slacking of the work of this church. One question. Who is here this morning in church because I invited them? Take a look around. Who is here this morning because of you? If you look around and say, well, you know, actually there's no one here that I invited. Then you have identified the source 
of our problem at this church. As Pogo would say, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Let me talk to you about what I call the gospel according to Pogo. Raise your hand if you know who Pogo is. Okay, good. That's good. It's important to read the funny page. For those of you who never met Pogo, he is an opossum. Give us that slide, Jay. And he lives in the Okefenokee Swamp. And maybe you can't see that. He was a daily cartoon. He was created by Walt Kelly. It ran in the newspapers for about 30 years. This is the, the cartoon from Earth Day, 1971. And it reads this way. Ah, Pogo, the beauty of the forest primeval gets me in the heart. And Pogo responds, it gets me in the feet, porcupine. And porcupine says, it is hard walking on this stuff. So they're, they're in this swamp and it's full of garbage and they're stepping on this garbage. And Pogo says, yep, son, we have met the enemy and he is us. Students of American history know that Pogo is punning on the dispatch made by Commodore Perry during the Battle of Lake Erie during the War of 1812. You need a college degree in order to read this comic. What Commodore Perry said was, we have met the enemy and they are ours, which Pogo twist just a bit to give us, we have met the enemy and he is us. Let me tell you with total sincerity and with the experience of 14 years as a solo pastor, Pogo is right. We have met the enemy and he is us. The gospel according to Pogo. That one line could be used in the vast majority of pastoral cases that come into my office. That one line could be used in the vast majority of church problems that the session deals with. We have met the enemy and he is us about 99 times out of 100. A woman comes to me and says, oh, pastor, my husband, he pays me no attention. I don't know how much more I can take this. But when you dig a little deeper, you realize that every time the husband does come near, the wife has a cutting remark for him and pushes him away. We've met the enemy and he is us. An elder comes to me and says, oh, pastor, attendance has been kind of slack at the church. You need to do something. Then you dig a little deeper and you discover that this elder hasn't invited anyone to church in 20 years. We've met the enemy and he is us. A woman comes to me and says, oh, pastor, our country is so divided and full of hate. I don't know how much more of this I can stand. And then... You dig a little deeper and you see her social media posts are filled with scorn and abuse for other people. We've met the enemy and he is us. The little video that we watched earlier in this service talked about enemies that we face every day that become hindrances to our giving. It mentions three enemies, debt, dishonest gain and distraction, each one of those enemies to personal financial freedom, each one of those enemies is us. We get ourselves in the debt. We get ourselves, we seek dishonest gain. We are distracted by money. The fleshly response to financial difficulties is to blame things outside of us. Oh, my pay 
is too low. Oh, the rent is too high. Oh, the lottery never comes in for me. But the biblical model of facing the trouble in our lives is to look at ourselves and to ask that hard question. What part of this problem did I create? What is my sin in this situation? We are our own worst enemies. 99 times out of 100. Does that sound harsh? We live in a psychotherapeutic culture where the cure of souls has been replaced with the soothing of psyches. Behaviors in the past that were simply identified as immoral or sinful have been converted by an army of well-meaning secular professionals into diseases and disorders, rendering the suffering person a victim rather than a culprit. To which Pogo says, we have met the enemy and he is us. Let me tell you why the gospel according to Pogo is not harsh or cruel or mean-spirited. Let me tell you why it is, in fact, hopeful and caring and effective. Because it works. When we take responsibility for the suffering in our lives, rather than shifting blame... Guess what happens? Our suffering ends quicker. But if we say, oh, woe is me, I'm being persecuted by all those evil baddies, they're making me suffer. Then guess what? Sure as two plus two is four, we will continue to suffer for the rest of our lives. The choice is ours. Have a victim mentality and you will spend your whole life being a victim. Take personal responsibility and confess your sins and your problems will be overcome. Pogo is right. We have met the enemy and he is us. Both of our readings this morning from Proverbs and from Galatians talk about self-control, which is all about taking responsibility and about self-mastery. And this past week, a number of us have had the interesting experience of trying a little self-control in the form of of fasting and prayer. I hope you have participated in this 21 days. I hope that you will continue to participate in the days ahead. I hope that you will feel a little bit of that struggle. That struggle for self-mastery and self-control. All of the Proverbs that we read this morning are about self-control. The blessings that come when our spirit controls our flesh and the misery that comes when our spirit is controlled by the flesh. Self-control shows up in Paul's list of the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, truthfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit are the superpowers of Christians. The fruit of the Spirit is what we have that the world doesn't have. Does it seem funny to you to think of self-control as a superpower? Self-control, which is all about taking personal responsibility and confessing our sins. Do you think of that as your Christian superpower? So often the world contends not for self-control, but for other control. What we crave is the power to control other 
people who are around us and we think that if we have the power to control what others are doing, that our lives will be happier and better. That's what the struggles of politics are all about, other control. Politics is the art of telling other people what to do. And if we have political control and can use our wisdom to tell people how to conduct their lives and organize things, then we think that the world is going to be a better place. What we crave is the power to control other people and we're willing to fight for that power politically. But what the Word of God tells us that we need is the power to control ourselves, to take personal responsibility and to repent of our sins. Because we've met the enemy and he's us. And that's what the struggle for wealth is all about, other control. Wealth is the power that we have to tell other people what to do, to bring us that food, to give us that product, to stay off this property. What we crave is the power to control others. And we're willing to fight for that power economically. But what the Word of God tells us we really need to do is to have the power to control ourselves, to take personal responsibility And to repent of our sins. Because we've met the enemy. And he's us. Struggles for power also happen in the church. Struggles for power to control what others will do in the church. Churches face those kinds of struggles. Struggles for other control. What we crave is the power to control others. And we're willing to fight for that power ecclesiastically. But what the Word of God calls us to do is to exercise the power of self-control. To take personal responsibility and to repent of our sins. Because we've met the enemy and he is us. Fasting is a great exercise in building our self-control muscles. In itself, there's nothing particularly edifying about being hungry But if we're willing to endure a bit of self-denial, we increase our powers of self-control, which is what the Word of God says that we need. Because we've met the enemy and he is us. We are our own worst enemies when our flesh wars against our spirit. But thanks be to God, the fruit of the spirit is self-control, which is really just another way of saying that our spirit controls our flesh rather than our flesh controlling our spirit. In two weeks, I am going to ask you for $12,500, $12,500 above what you're already giving to support the work of this ministry. And that $12,500 is going to be used to pay the cost of having the Go Center engage with this congregation for two years, beginning in January 2020, in a consulting and coaching relationship that will challenge this congregation to stop being so inwardly focused and to re-engage with the community that's outside of our doors, the community that is the mission field of this church. Churches share the gospel. We're the only organization on the planet that does that. Churches tell other people about Jesus. Churches invite people into the family of God. An organization that is not actively sharing the gospel outside of its doors is not a church. Even if it has hymnals and pews. An organization not actively sharing the gospel outside of its doors is not a church. It is what I call a religious reenactment society. 
You've all seen those Civil War reenactors. They dress up in costumes. They carry guns and they march around in fields. And every once in a while they dash off into battle against each other. But they're shooting blanks. It's just a show. It's not a real army. They're just reenactors. Some churches have become religious reenactment societies. They're all dressed up like churches. They go through the same motion as churches. They sing the hymns and they take up the collection. But they're shooting blanks. Because they're not sharing the real gospel with real people. Because when they look around themselves on Sunday morning, they realize, gosh, not a single person is here because I invited them. A real army kills real enemies and wins real victories. And real Christians obey the Great Commission and invite people to church. And real churches organize themselves in a way that is inviting and accommodating to those people who will come through our doors so that they feel welcomed and at home. Real churches ask themselves hard questions like, what do we need to do differently to bring more people to a saving knowledge of Christ? Real churches make converts. And real churches crush the head of Satan in the name of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. With God's help, with some coaching from the Go Center, we're going to shake this place up. We're going to put some live rounds of ammo into our firearms. And we're going to begin to stop being a church reenactment society. That change will be challenging. Particularly for those of us who are tired or who fear change. But it's also going to be fun. Because no one wants to be part of something that's spinning down to death. Because everyone wants to be part of something that's growing and making a difference. Because no one wants to have their legacy end with them. Because everyone loves to have grandchildren who carry on the family story. We've got a great story here. It's a story that HVPC has been telling for more than 150 years. It's a simple story. It's called the gospel. Here's how Paul describes it. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you. Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. Now here it is. Here's his description of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. That's the story that... Only we can share. No other organization on the planet is going to share that story. And that is the story which saves people. There's nothing more important than we can do with our time and our energy and our money. And that's what we're going to be doing going forward. So be of good cheer. God loves us. God loves this church. This church has a bright future. For the moment... We're in a season of providential affliction. For the past 12 months, we did go backwards. That was the price of a decision to coast that we took maybe 24 months ago. But I know that this present affliction is simply a sign of God's providential love of this congregation. God is correcting us now 
because he has a better future in store for us soon. God is giving us this opportunity to repent and to recommit ourselves to Christ and to the work of the church of Jesus Christ. Divine discipline for our lack of faith and commitment is a sign of God's favor for us. It's a sign that God has not cut us loose. May the glory of the Lord once again fill his temple. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you and we recognize that you are our only hope. We thank you for sending your son into this world to save us from ourselves and from our sins. We pray that we would continue to be a gospel-proclaiming church. Pray that as we go out from these doors, we might go out into the world with your eyes looking for opportunities to draw others to Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand now?